The Talmud proclaims that Rosh Hashanah celebrates Yom Harat HaOlam, the day the world was created. It also declares that today is Yom Hadin, the day of judgment. And these two concepts are not contradictory, but in fact are combined and merged together because today is the day when all that God created, all of God's creatures, the entire world, not only Jews, are judged. And the Unatana Tok of Prayer, which the cantor sang so beautifully just a few moments ago, explicitly conveys this when it asserts, All that lives on earth shall pass before you like a flock of sheep. For on this day, it says, you judge each and every living being, not just us, but everyone. So you might ask, if this is a day when all the world is judged, and we're supposed to pray for the coming year, how come we're the only ones here today? Why aren't Gentiles here or praying in their houses of worship? A fair question. Maybe they didn't get the memo. Or perhaps, just perhaps it may reflect something deeper and more profound. We take this day as an opportunity to pray not just for ourselves, our people, and our as individuals, but on behalf of all the nations and all people of the world, not so that they will see the light and suddenly convert and become Jewish, but rather because it reflects our universalistic values and our concern for all of humanity. As Elie Wiesel wrote, our mission has never been to make the world Jewish, more Jewish, only more human. Our responsibility to be a blessing to all the world was evident centuries ago, when on Sukkot, 70 sacrifices were offered at the Beit Mikdash in Jerusalem on behalf of the 70 nations of the world. So we might ask, how's this worked out? Where has our concern and advocacy for others gotten us? Well, on the minds of Jews around the world, and I suspect most likely the subject of many high holiday sermons, not just here, is a topic which as recently as a few years ago really was not given much consideration, a concern for personal security because of the increased level of threats and hostility from all quarters. It used to be you had to bring your tickets when you came to shul on the high holidays in order to show you were a member of good standing. I'm sure many of you have seen the Curb Your Enthusiasm show where Larry David buys a ticket for high holiday services from a scalper. only to come in and find out someone else is sitting in his seat because it turns out he got a counterfeit ticket. It calls to mind the joke about the guy who comes to high holiday services without a ticket and he says, I have to go in to deliver an important message to my brother. Well, against his better judgment after much back and forth, the usher reluctantly agrees to let the guy go into the sanctuary. And as he opens the door to let him in, the usher warns him and he says to him, you can go into the sanctuary to speak to your brother, only don't let me catch you praying while you're in there. <laughs> well, now we have not just volunteer ushers, but we have police officers. And they're not here just to check tickets or direct traffic, but to act as security guards. That's how much our world has changed. And by the way, I'm sure you would agree with me that we have the nicest security officers. That, Tell them. 
the, the nicest, and I must add, the best fed as well. In fact, they are so nice, I sometimes worry that, God forbid, if anything would ever happen, and they were presented with a real threat, they would confront the would-be assailant, disarm him, and say to the guy, here, have a knish. Until recently, security was not as high a concern for most Jews or Jewish organizations as it is today. But now we've been forced to reevaluate our complacency and our laid-back attitude. Growing up in a post-Holocaust world where the horrors perpetrated by the Nazis were almost universally condemned and recognized as an aberration which would never be allowed to be repeated, I never imagined that anti-Semitism would resurface to the extent that it has today. The situation of Jews in Europe is particularly precarious and foreboding, where anti-Semitism is rampant and many Jews fear for their lives as they're attacked and accosted by right-wing neo-Nazis and Islamist militant anti-Semites closer to home. Our snug conviction that America is different from every other nation where we have lived and where we have said it can't happen here has been shattered. In 2017, almost 60% of all reported hate crimes in the United States were committed against Jews. The march in Charlottesville with white supremacists bearing a striking resemblance to Nazi brown shirts carrying torches at a nighttime rally shouting, Jews will not replace us, was a frightening image and a scary precursor to the violence that has percolated and pierced the surface. In October of this past year, a white supremacist driven by pathological xenophobic hatred burst into the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh killing 11 worshipers. And it was followed by an attack six months later on a Chabad synagogue on Shabbat in Poway, California, leading the ADL to conclude in its annual report issued earlier this year that anti-Semitism in the United States has now reached historic levels, unprecedented. So just as the blast of the shofar is intended to jar and awaken us, the gunshots should call upon us to be aroused out of our complacency to wake up and to question our long-held assumptions that anti-Semitism is a minor nu nu nuisance or a relic of the past. No longer does anti-Semitism appear to be a remote, nebulous, distant threat that we need not worry about. Nor can we rationalize and try to convince ourselves that since it stems from extremist, right-wing, marginalized losers and crazies on the fringe, we need not worry about their ability to harm us. This year has taught us a lot. The time has come to honestly confront the reality that anti-Semitism appears in many forms and that the threat is real. We dare not begin to regard hate crimes, discriminatory acts, or intimidation as isolated incidents or tolerable expressions of free speech because eventually we and society will become numb with the cumulative effect that such behavior somehow be considered normal and acceptable. One reason this should be of concern to all, and not just to Jews, is because throughout history, we've been the proverbial canary in the mine. History has shown that the society that turns against its Jews decays from within by the weight of its venom, for the disease prevents a culture from dealing with its real problems. Like a cancer, it eventually
destroys the whole body that hosts it. In England, anti-Semitism, masquerading as anti-Zionism, has creeped into the Labour Party and now has moved into the mainstream, becoming part of their platform and part of their positions. Some of the very parliamentarians who have left the party over this issue blame themselves for not taking the warning signs more seriously earlier. They say that since it was originally confined to college campuses and it only took the form of criticism of Israel, they mistakenly assumed it would not find its way into the general body politic. And Israel, that must maintain the means to defend itself since its very existence for, is threatened every day and cannot be taken for granted, presents a challenge for a generation raised to be suspicious of military might. They assume the weak must be right and it's inconceivable that those with power could be just. It's such an atmosphere, it's no wonder that Israel and its supporters are demonized on college campuses. Nice, trusting, and often naive Jewish students are intimidated and often overwhelmed, and they don't know what to do or how to respond when they're harassed by hostile anti-Israel haters. Eviction notices are placed on dorm rooms of Jewish students. Anti-Israel propaganda permeates. Pro-Israel speakers are not allowed to speak or are shouted down. Academics from Israel are barred from participating in academic or conferences. Jewish supporters of Israel are ostracized and kept out of progressive organizations, forcing them to choose between their desire to advocate for social justice and loyalty to their people. Gil Troy points out that the obsessive targeting of Israel is designed to force progressive Jews to hide their Zionism and become modern-day crypto-Jews. Not surprisingly, I reject the notion that allows people to get away with anti-Semitic tropes by saying they don't really hate Jews, only Zionists or Israel. And I have two letters for this, BDS, without the middle letter. Omar Barghouti, the founder of the BDS movement, has admitted that its goal is not to end Israeli control of territories claimed by the Palestinians or to change its policies, but rather to ostracize Israel and its supporters and to delegitimize the very concept of a Jewish homeland. The real threat posed by BDS is not economic. Israel thrives, but rather it's in the marketplace of ideas where lies, distortions, and ignoring of Israel's decency and humanity coupled with a superficial understanding and misrepresentation of their true intent, contaminates the minds of young people. He's on record as having said that no Palestinian should ever accept a Jewish state. So this hypercritical focus on the only Jewish state in the world at the United Nations and its agencies, among European nations, on college campuses, and the radical left, while ignoring injustice elsewhere in the Middle East or world, is a poor attempt to camouflage anti-Semitism. The unrelenting criticism demonizes Israel and attempts to negate and deny our very narrative of our history as a people. Professor Judea Pearl, father of slain journalist Daniel Pearl, has suggested that we use the terms Zionophobia and Judeophobia to explain the irrational obsession with and hatred of Israel and Jews. 
This does not refer to legitimate criticism of the specific policies of the government, which certainly there are reasons when individuals may wish to do so, but rather of the intense singling out of Israel for condemnation. Let's not fool ourselves. It has nothing to do with who the country's leader is. It's the very existence of Israel which upsets them and which they would want to deny. Until those who are so quick to condemn Israel begin to take up the cause of the oppressed, persecuted, and disenfranchised Yazidis, Kurds, Zoroastrians, Uyghurs, Rohingyas, one half million Arabs slaughtered by Assad, Christians in Muslim countries, the victims of ISIS, the victims of Turkish-occupied Cyprus, their efforts to isolate Israel exposed for the hypocrisy which they try to obscure. Jews are probably the only victims of hatred who are blamed for what is done by, to them by those who hate them. It is as wrong as blaming homosexuals for the prejudice they encounter or to blame women who are victims of sexual abuse or rape. I participate in interfaith forums promoting understanding and tolerance among Jews and Muslims and have invited Muslim speakers to our congregation to highlight and encourage their courageous work fighting against hatred of Jews. Were we to malign or prejudge an entire religion or community, we would be guilty of the very same prejudice against us that we find so despicable. But we cannot overlook or excuse the damage caused by the indoctrination that emanates from mosques, media, governments, and schools throughout the Muslim and Arab world. It's no wonder that in those countries, the rate of anti-Semitism exceeds over 92%. Addressing the anti-Semitism of Ilhan Omar and her own indoctrination as a child, Ayan Hirsi Ali from Somalia says that it is the most zealous, potent, dangerous, widespread, and underestimated form of anti-Semitism today. We live in a confusing time in many respects. It's almost as if we can no longer even agree on what qualifies as being anti-Semitic. There are those whose policies clearly support and strengthen the Jewish state, yet they say things that, if not blatantly anti-Semitic, certainly resonate and are heard as such by those who are encouraged by that kind of an approach. And there are those who are vehemently opposed to the Jewish state, who profess positive attitudes towards Jews. Go figure. Our politics are now so fractionalized that people debate whether hatred on the right or the left is more dangerous, not from any kind of objective perspective, but from their partisan point of view, pointing to the hatred emanating from the other side while ignoring that which comes from their own side all too often. The right claims that we are promoters of race contamination, and the left sees us, the ultimate victims throughout the millennia, as being privileged members of the white elite power structure. The charge of white privilege stereotypes all Jews and minimizes Jewish suffering and persecution. It also does not recognize how many Jews of color there are, and it misrepresents, therefore, the majority of Israel Israelis who are neither white nor rich, as well as the millions of Jews who are not wealthy, not to mention all the rabbis who aren't wealthy either. <laughs> the physical attacks in this country on houses of worship have come from extremists on the right who say, as did the shooter in Pittsburgh, all Jews must die. The Internet 
has become a useful handmaiden to disseminate their rantings. And while the radical right-wing extremists want to kill us, the danger espoused by the radical left is equally potent. Deborah Lipstadt warns that sometimes the most harm can be done not by the violent in-your-face self-professed Jew hater, she writes, but by ordinary people who have acquired their views almost through cultural osmosis. As New York Times columnist Barry Weiss points out, the threat from the left is more subtle and seductive because it uses language that appeals to seemingly progressive values. <coughs> Gil Troy has written that the anti-Semitism of intellectuals and social justice warriors is dangerous because it appeals to concepts of social justice and other notions that resonate with us and are consistent with the liberal values and concern for the underdog that many Jews have been told is the very essence and totality of Judaism. A few years ago, I was with Israel's ambassador to the United States, Michael Oren, at a reception at the governor's, mission, governor's mansion in Annapolis. And a young kid came up and innocently asked Ambassador Oren. He said, Mr. Ambassador, of all the countries in the world that hate you, who hates you the most? Can you imagine that question being asked of the ambassador of any other country in the world? People often try to diagnose the source of this irrational hatred that refuses to disappear. Is it resentment of our success, of what we've achieved? Is it jealousy? Is it based in economic reasons? Does it come from religious teachings? Are we a convenient scapegoat just because we are different? Well, it's all this and more. Barry Weiss suggests in her new wonderful book that it's based on a conspiratorial theory that sees Jews as the source of all evils in a society. The brilliant writer Yossi Klein Halevi, who's spoken at B'nai Tzedek, sums it up by saying that anti-Semitism is a reflection of what is most abhorrent in a society. And this explains why to capitalist Jews epitomize communism, to communists, Jews are the personification of capitalists, and to liberals, we are exploitative colonialists, and so on. We may never be able to identify the underlying causes, nor can we comprehend why it, what is often called the world's oldest hatred persists and tenaciously refuses to disappear. How to explain that countries which are Judenrein, free of all Jews, still have anti-Semitism? So getting to the source and the core of the problem may in fact be a futile exercise, and we may need to reconcile ourselves to the fact that it may never disappear and may always be with us. Little will come from putting our energy into applying logic to try to understand something as illogical as the world's oldest hatred. So are we just to raise up our hands and say, it is what it is and we just have to live with it? Well, instead of trying to rationally understand the irrational, I want to suggest the following. First and foremost, we must remain vigilant and not be silent in the face of hatred. Those on the right call out and object, those on the right must call out and object to the Judeophobia and anti-Semitism on the right. And those who are on the fringe left must call out and protest the Zionophobia and anti-Semitism of those on the far left. The resignation of three anti-Semitic leaders of the Women's March is an excellent model of how to respond. 
Women and Jews in the liberal movement were not silent. They courageously stood up and they publicly exposed the anti-Israel, anti-Jewish comments, associations, and beliefs of the three leaders. And ultimately, they resigned. We can all learn from their powerful example and be inspired by it. And we also need to call out anti-Jewish remarks and even think twice about anti-Jewish jokes. There was a time in the 80s and 90s when jokes about American Jewish princesses were making the rounds. And I always found their negative portrayal and unflattering stereotype of Jewish women to be abhorrent and repulsive and was pleased when the genre was discarded. I'll never forget the first time that I heard the word Jew used as a verb. I don't even want to repeat the reference. Just a week or two ago, a member of a county council in New Jersey saw no harm in using the term. I was a college freshman at the time, working as an intern on Capitol Hill for a congressman when the office manager made the reference. Although I was only 18 years old and she was my boss, I explained to her why the usage was so offensive and asked her to never say it again. It has become tolerable and even fashionable to make pejorative remarks about Jews. We should not allow individuals to use their Jewish background to cloak anti-Semitic tropes. About a month ago, a local radio station, DC 101, Jock, went on a rant making crude, disgusting, obnoxious, sophomoric remarks about the practices of observant Jews. Had these things been said about any other racial or ethnic group, he would have been shut down and taken off the air immediately. And guess what? The guy was Jewish. So similarly, we should not allow groups that purport to represent Jews but which oppose Jewish interest to present themselves as speaking on behalf of the Jewish community. Groups such as If Not Now and Jewish Voice for Peace have taken the term self-hating Jew to a whole new level. In the not-too-distant past, candidates of major political parties vied and competed for the mantle of being the most pro-Israel candidate. Now, some candidates feel free to state publicly their misgivings about support for the only democratic state in the Middle East and our best ally. One of our own has even hired an anti-Semite, Linda Sarsour, and given her a high-profile position as a spokesperson and representative of his campaign, even though he is Jewish. Sanders, Sanders. Earlier this year, I wasn't going to say his name. Earlier this year, the New York Times was embarrassed by the public uproar over an anti-Semitic cartoon that appeared in their international edition. Now, I must tell you, I've read things in the paper that, in my opinion, were far worse and more offensive. But to show their remorse and to placate all of the outpouring of protest, the New York Times retracted it. They apologized. They held a number of meetings with Jewish communal leaders and Jewish organizations. They changed their policy. They even stopped publishing cartoons altogether. The Times did everything short of changing the language of record to Yiddish to show their remorse. So why were they so repentant? And why were they so responsive this time? And why was the Jewish community so successful? For one simple reason, because we were united. No Jewish organizations issued statements saying, we're not that offended. 
Nobody said, it's really not that bad. The lesson to be learned is that when we are united, when we stand up for our people and what we know to be right, we can accomplish great things. And importantly, we need not fight these battles alone. After the attack on the synagogue in Pittsburgh, just prior to the overflowing community-wide service we held here at B'nai Tzedek, I stopped at Giant to purchase some Yardside candles for our service. And I happened to be wearing my kippah. The person in front of me, the person behind me, and the cashier all made a point of expressing their personal condolences and to tell me how horrified they were by the attack on the synagogue. And for me, it affirmed what I've known all along, that this is a good country, that the overwhelming number of its citizens are honorable and decent people, and also that we are not alone. And so we should continue to seek alliances with other minorities who are singled out for discrimination. We cannot allow the intersectionality movement to deny us our right to participate and to align with others who are wronged and to act on our conviction and commitments to work on behalf of principles of social justice, which are so very much at the core of being Jewish. We must be as outraged as prejudice and attacks on members of the LBGTQ community, on immigrants and Muslims and others as we are when our own community is attacked. And finally, let us learn from our own history a seminal event occurred in 1654 when a boatload of 24 Jews landed in the New York Harbor. Over 350 years ago, those first Jews were the first to arrive in the new land. Peter Stuyvesant, the governor employed by the Dutch West Indies Company to oversee, to oversee the city known at the time as New Amsterdam, sent word back to the Netherlands and he asked what to do with the Jews who had arrived. And he reassured the, his company not to worry. He had them all locked up. Word came back to release them immediately and to let them settle in the new colony. Stuyvesant must not have realized that over half the directors who sat on the board of that company were Jews. The Jews sitting in Amsterdam on the board of the West, Dutch West Indies Company and those who got off the boat from Recife, Brazil, did not know each other, but the only thing they knew and the only thing they had in common was that they were Jews. I've often thought about this episode and how it could teach us so much. It reflects a beautiful aspect of being Jewish, a teaching from the Talmud, which tells us, Kol Yisrael Arevim Zebezeh, all of Israel is connected, all of Israel is responsible for one another. When I went to a synagogue in southern France this summer, I asked the rabbi how things were going and if they were afraid in light of all that we've read about and heard about with the attacks on Jews and Jewish institutions. Incidentally, the synagogue was packed with only one or two empty seats. He told me that while there certainly are concerns, for the most part, they're doing fine. And I told him I was relieved and glad to hear that. I said, because we Jews in America worry about you. And he then said to me, and we Jews in France worry about you in America. We are in this together. Our fate is intricately intertwined as a people. We not, cannot think because it happens elsewhere 
it doesn't impact on us. Or because the attacks are on Hasidic Jews in Crown Heights who look different than us because they have peyot and strimals. Or on settlers in the West Bank that somehow we are secure and it's not us. Nor can we be indifferent because the enmity is directed at Israel and the boycotts are only of Israeli products. Israel's consul general in New York, Danny Dayan, has written that the Jews in every generation each have an extra mitzvah. Like Emil Fackenheim's 614th commandment, he says the mitzvah for our generation is to preserve and strengthen the state of Israel to ensure the continued existence of the Jewish people wherever they are. So let us defeat anti-Semitism and defy the Jew haters by denying them a victory. To the generations who came before us, who sacrificed so much to keep Judaism alive in the face of danger we can only imagine and have not encountered. We owe them no less than clinging to that which was so precious to them, clinging to our Judaism, because we are here in a free and open world which does not extract a cost for doing so, and where we are free to choose to either be Jewish or to assimilate and blend in. When I lived in Miami, Simcha and I had a Jewish neighbor who used to tell me that even though he wasn't a good Jew and didn't really practice Judaism, he would be the first to punch in the mouth anyone who said anything negative about Jews. I greatly appreciated his passion and intensity, and I made sure not to say anything negative about Jews <laughs> when I was around him. But we need not just do that. We need to be more than anti-anti-Semites. Let us be proud, defiantly proud, proud of Judaism, proud of being Jewish, proud of Jewish accomplishments, proud of what we've contributed to the world and given to it. Let us take joy in the celebration of our culture, our heritage, our message and civilization. So to those on college campuses who seek to peel away young people from their connection to the Jewish people, let us respond by defiantly and proudly celebrating all that Israel has accomplished and what it continues to do as a light unto the nations of the world. The answer to those who would shoot people in the synagogue is not to be intimidated, but to come and fill our houses of worship regularly, often, to make our homes and families places where words of Torah are heard, where we study our beautiful tradition, and where the joy of being a part of this eternal people is lived each and every day. And so to those who ask, what do we do? What is the response? What can we do and what is the response to anti-Semitism? It is Judaism. It is be Jewish. Let us take that message into the new year. Let us resolve to strengthen our conviction and our commitment to our heritage and our people and our faith. And let us say, Amen.